0: My name is Matt, and I have the privilege of serving on the worship team, and I have the honor of reading this morning's scripture. It's from Philippians two twelve through 18. Therefore, my dear, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Matt. Philippians is our field guide to joy. And today in chapter two, we learn how our growth and character is connected to joy, why it's so important for us to pay attention to it, and how we can do it. So let's pray together and ask God to open our hearts and teach us this morning. Father, we thank you that you not only rescue us from our sin, but you change us and transform us from the inside out. We pray first for those here this morning who do not yet know you. We pray that today they would understand the weight and guilt of sin and the beauty and glory of what Jesus has done about our sin, that they would believe in Jesus and be saved today. We pray for those who are going to be baptized and make that public declaration that they would be encouraged today, that they are responding to what you are doing in their lives. And for us all, God, we pray and ask that we would see growth as just that, a response to the work you are doing in us. I pray that none of us would neglect it or push it aside, but respond to the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray all this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Ever since the Titanic The idea that the captain goes down with the ship has been ingrained in our minds. But twice in recent history, a captain has actually been the first to leave the ship, placing their own lives ahead of others. First, you may recall happened with a cruise ship in Italy, but just a few years ago, it also happened in South Korea. The pictures were all over the internet. The captain of this South Korean ferry was one of the first to step to safety as he left hundreds of lives in danger. He was subsequently arrested, tried, and convicted for his actions. And yet there were other crew members on that same ferry, like one 22-year-old woman who heroically stayed to help everyone she possibly could, even giving up her own life jacket in the process. You hear a story like that and you ask, well, what was the difference between the captain and the crew? More specifically, which person would you like to be? Don't answer it too quickly. Well the difference was not in the test. The difference was in the people. The same test of two people bore different results. Or it might be better to say that the same test revealed two types of character. Now few of us would ever hold such a position or maybe even face such a crisis. But all of us in this room, we are all responsible For our own lives, and we will face our own tests, both big and small. How do we prepare now? What are the choices today? How do we give our character attention today so that we become the people we ought to be? Well, the decision you make today matters. I'm reminded this week of the poet Emerson, what he said about character. It's genius. He said, so a thought and you reap an action. Sow an action, and you reap a habit. Sow a habit, and you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. Your choices today and every day, even in the most mundane aspects of ordinary life, absolutely matter and are connected to your character. This is important because we live in a culture which cherishes achievement and we cherish our desires, but not always our character. It's the same culture that highlights our need for success, but not our need for salvation. We're good at building brands, but not building our character. As another author put it, Dallas Willard famously said, the most important thing is not what you achieve. It is the person you become. So how can I pay attention to this? How can I attend to my character? Well, the Apostle Paul is writing his letter to the Philippian church, a community that he helped launch years before he ended up in jail for his faith. And these men and women are facing tests and pressures of their own. And in chapter 2, of his letter, after making it very clear that Jesus is our ultimate example to follow in humility, he now addresses growth. He now addresses the importance of character. For those of you who are Christians this morning, I want to show you why your character matters now. How you can give attention to it today and how it is connected to your future. For those of you who are not yet Christians, maybe you're here because somebody else is getting baptized. I want to make it very clear why faith in Jesus is absolutely essential and necessary for your life now and forever. And it's all connected to real, lasting joy. If I had to put it in a phrase, it would be this. Joy real joy, the kind of joy that Paul's talking about, is knowing that your work, your influence, and your future are all connected to God's work, God's power, and God's plan. It's knowing that you're in relationship to God, and that the way you live is connected to what he has said. Well, how does that work out? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to respond when it comes to character? Well, I want to note three things this text teaches us about our character, about our growth, about our future, and how it can connect to our God. And the first lesson is this. It's not an exciting one, but you need to know it. Character takes work. Some are like, oh, great. Notice the language that Paul uses here. It's surprising when he speaks of growth. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. Therefore, my dear friends, As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose." The surprising word happens at the beginning, obey. To modern people, we think of character, we think of growth, we think of how we are to live, and we hear the word obey, and we're like, what? I don't obey anything. I obey myself. Which is the message of our culture? Just obey your feelings. Obey your desires. Because inevitably, you obey something. But what should we obey? Obey. I was surprised when I read an article by David Brooks, who was a writer for the New York Times, who ended up becoming a Christian later in life. He's confronting this idea of obedience, and he takes aim at those commencement speeches that you often hear at college graduations, which usually tell you to turn inward and to follow your passion, right? Like look within, find your passion, and that's your like PDF that you need to pay attention to for life. But he actually says, think of the people you know and look throughout history, the deepest people of character, they actually don't look inward. They obey a call. They obey something outside of themselves. I want you to notice, friends, that when Paul is talking about growth, when he's talking about character, he starts by talking about obedience. Now, what kind of obedience is Paul talking about? Well, no doubt, It is the obedience to the way of Jesus, the teaching and pattern that Paul left with these men and women when he planted that church. And in doing so, he's underlining what the Bible teaches everywhere, that obedience to God is essential for spiritual growth. If you want to grow, obedience is essential. That is, following the ways of God, following the word of God, regardless of your initial feelings about it. This is the way in which our soul becomes nourished. This, this is the way in which you and I grow in our faith. Obedience is the clearly marked path upon which your character grows. Obedience may feel unnatural at first. I remember when I first became a Christian, it was like learning in the Bible all the things that were forbidden that I was totally doing pretty much every day of my life. So at first it felt unnatural. I'm like, I'm used to living in immorality and now I'm called to morality. Like, uh, oh, it feels so weird, but it was right. I was so used to living my life in a particular way a rhythm, and a habit that was anti-God. And now, as a new Christian in that moment, I had to relearn. And at first, it felt unnatural. But it was right, and it was true. I was learning, in those early days, obedience. It's the attitude of the heart that says, God, your ways are higher than mine. Regardless of what seems right in my own eyes at first, I'm going to follow your ways. And for those of you who are the most... Mature, seasoned Christian in the room—you don't outgrow obedience. Notice that Paul is referring to a continual obedience. He says, "As you have always obeyed, continue to do so." He commends this way of obedience as a habitual lifestyle. And when it comes to growth, he drives this point home as it pertains to your responsibility. Our growth takes personal effort. And so he says, work out your salvation. What does this mean? Well, first, uh, notice the language he's using. Work out your salvation. The, the, The Greek phrase means to expend energy, take pains in laboring at it. See, we often think that growth... You know, just kind of happens on its own, like we're gonna drift into growth. But let me tell you right now, that is not how it works. You will never drift into maturity, you will never drift into Christ likeness, you will never drift into obedience. It takes effort, it takes attention. He says, work out your salvation. So let's be very clear, in the work of your character, in the work of your spiritual growth, great effort is required from you. Meaning you cannot outsource your growth to someone else. For those of you who are married, you can't just outsource your spiritual growth to your spouse. Well, she's godly, so like it'll just kind of spill over onto me, right? Like, God's like, hey, she's good, so I guess I'll lump you in together. If you have friends and community in the church, you can't outsource your growth to them. You can't outsource your prayer life to another person. Hey, I don't pray, but you do, so we're all good, right? Hey! (laughs) You can't outsource your Bible reading to someone else. You can't outsource what you get from Christian fellowship to someone else. It takes attention. And it takes effort from you. It means I have to think about this. Like, it applies to everyone. Nobody gets a free pass. Well, the rest of the church is godly, so, like, I'm good, right? No. Work out your salvation. There's work. There's effort. In the same way, there's so many simple parallels to your physical body. If you want to, like, you know, be healthy, you need to give attention to what you're doing and and what you're eating. In the same way, what is the spiritual food that we are feasting on and how are we exercising in the spiritual life? Let me give you just four habits that produce growth. Habits that you and I must attend to if we are going to grow in our character. And they take work. These are simple. First is studying the Bible. Time that you devote to reading and understanding scripture so that you might understand God. You can't outsource that to someone else. It might feel unnatural to do it. It might even be an inconvenience when you wake up in the morning and your house is going crazy. And like, you know, like let me tell you, it's not always my first priority in the morning to go, oh, I need the word of God. My first instinct is coffee. I will literally do anything. Like, even if we didn't have modes of transportation, like, I'd find a horse, I'd get on it, and like, I'm getting coffee. I'll do whatever it takes. But then I have to stop and think, like, what is my number one priority here? I need to hear from God. I can't outsource that to someone else. The second habit is prayer. Are we giving attention to putting work into prayer? Making it a a discipline and a habit. Conversing with God, talking to God, pouring out your heart to God, asking Him to provide for you, to lead you, and to guide you, and to give you the strength that you need to endure your day. Prayer is a growth-producing habit. The third is community. That is fellowship with, with other believers. The, the New Testament knows of no such thing as an isolated Christian life. Like you're connected to a body of believers. The question is, are you living like it? Or do we just keep the church and everyone else like at arm's length? You will not grow without other people. Other people in my life, they help me to see what I would normally not see. They challenge me where I need to be challenged. They encourage me where I need to be encouraged. This is a growth-producing habit. And fourth is service. Putting into practice for the sake of others what you've been learning like we just learned, learned about this morning. There's opportunities all over the place. Could it be serving with our young people or with our, our kids or serving somehow in the church? It's a part of how you grow. These are four simple, and there are many more, but those are just four growth-producing habits. They take work. They take effort. We often put so much effort into other aspects of our lives, like maybe it's our, our finances or our career, and we just think the rest of our spiritual lives is just going to like happen by itself. It takes effort. And notice, he says, it's effort with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because what is at stake matters. When we're talking about our growth, when we're talking about living in light of who God is, that is a weighty matter. And so we approach it in a way that is appropriate to the task at hand. This phrase in the Greek means reverential awe. A few weeks back, my friend, you know, I I play guitar. I've always played guitar since I was a kid, so I have a, a lot of respect for guitars. And my friend, he got this very, very expensive guitar. And he's showing it to me and he's describing the wood and how it was made. And he's like, you want to play it? And I was like, oh, can I, can I, can I hold it? Can I, and I was like, oh, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, like I, I was, I was handling it with reverential awe, why? Because I was appreciating the value of it, friends. If I'm doing that with like a nice guitar, how much more should we be doing that regarding our lives and our character? See, so much of us, we approach our growth very flippantly, like, yeah, if it happens, it happens. (laughs) If I grow, I grow, if not, no problem. We should be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I need to grow, this is a weighty matter, studying the Word of God, whoa, yes, okay. Prayer, oh my goodness, prayer is such an awesome thing. It's a privilege. I need to approach it with reverential awe, fellowship in the, the church, and service. We need to ap- approach it in a manner that is appropriate to the task at hand. Think about m- my life, my role as a husband or you know, as a father. If I took it casually, you would think that I don't take it seriously. If someone's like, hey, work on your marriage, I'm like, yeah, right, whatever. Like, marriage will work out itself. You'd be like, uh, or or parenting. I'm like, yeah, I don't really put any effort into parenting. I just open the door, throw some food in, and check in on them at 8 o'clock and just see how it goes. You would think like, uh, you're not taking this like in the way that it should be taken. Well, how much more for our salvation? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we get that, we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul, hang on for a moment. What you're saying seems contradictory to what I understand about the Christian faith. We're never told to work for our salvation. And friend, if that's you asking that question, you are right. And Paul, no doubt anticipating objections, he clarifies something at the end of the sentence. He's saying, work out your salvation for it is God who is at work in you. So this is important. Paul is not, when he tells you to make great effort in the Christian life, Paul is not saying that you are the cause of your salvation. Paul is not saying that what you do is the reason for your salvation. Rather, what you do is the result of your salvation. To put it another way, we work out what God works in. The Christian gospel is not go work for God and then somehow you'll be saved. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith. But because of what he's done, we respond. And we work out what he works in. So let me be clear. Paul is not saying that you can work for your salvation. Your effort that you are to put into growth and your character is not the reason for your salvation. It is the result of your salvation. Your growth and your effort in the Christian life is not the reason that God loves you. It is the result that he already does love you. The effort you put into the Christian life is not the reason for God's favor. It is the result that you have received God's favor. It's all about a response. And I love that we're celebrating baptisms today because Mm -hmm. baptism is a, 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 a beautiful, simple picture of this glorious truth. We respond to the work that God has done. Baptism does not save you. But being baptized is a response to the God who has saved you. As we like to say, baptism is an outward response of an inward change. So for those of you getting baptized today, baptism does not save you. It is a response to the fact that you are saved. God's given you a new heart. You've trusted in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if you've trusted in me, now be baptized. It's obedience. It is a response. It doesn't save you. It's not the reason for your salvation, it is a result of salvation. So be encouraged today. Those of you who have decided to be baptized, you are obeying Jesus in response to what he has done for you. Friends, we are not bystanders when it comes to our our Christian faith and when it comes to our spiritual health. We work out what God works in. And God delights in this. At the end of verse 13, he's renewing us and restoring us for his good purpose. So my question for you and for me is, are we at work? Are we spiritually exercising, if you will? Are we laboring? Are we giving attention to our character? Are we saying, man, God wants to address these areas, and this is weighty. This is a big deal. I need to respond. But lest I think I'm doing this on my own, I work out what God works in. He is at work in me to will and to act according to his good purpose. And when you give attention to this, it leads to the second lesson about character. First of all, character takes work. But we work out what God works in. Secondly, character leaves an example. See, this is so important because whether you're prepared for it or not, whether you realize it or not, you are leaving an example. We all are. The question is, is it an example worth following? So what should that example be? What should I avoid? See, Paul now building on this foundational aspect of Christian growth, we work out what God works in, we respond to God by giving attention, to our growth in character, he now gives us some very down-to-earth applications with this big idea that your character leaves an example. Look at verse 14 to the beginning of verse 16. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Just want that one to sit in the room for a minute. We'll get there in a moment. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. It says your life leads an example. You leave an impact on other people. So in what areas? Well, in every area. God cares about every sphere of life. According to God, there is no divide between the sacred and the secular. What you do on a Sunday versus what you do on a Monday. It's not like God's like, hey, when you're in Sunday, I want you in your best behavior. And you're like, all right, God, game face on Sunday. And you show up and you're like, hey, everyone, God bless you. Oh, God bless you, God bless you too. Like, oh, hands in the air, it's worship time. Yes, I'm doing it. And then God's like, okay, Sunday's done. Just go wild for the rest of the afternoon. He's like, yes. God cares about every aspect of life. You know what that means? We don't get to tell God when he's done when it comes to our sanctification. See, we like to pick and choose the areas in which uh, we want God to change. When I was first a Christian, there were obvious areas that needed to change. But then a few years later, God's like, hey, I want to change how you view money. They're like, no, 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 God, I'm good. We got the overt immorality out of the way. That was good. Your work is done here, Lord. And he's like, oh, no. The work continues. There's more change that must take place. God is not pleased just to stop with, with one flaw. He's after total restoration when it comes to your life. And the example is that our lives would become a redemptive influence, not a destructive influence. So there's a warning here. Paul addresses head on two of our favorite pastimes, grumbling and arguing. And when it comes to these two friends, let me tell you, I am a professional. I am a professional grumbler and arguer. And I think some of us in the room are as well. When it comes to complaining or grumbling, like we love to complain. When I complain, I feel like I'm accomplishing something. Right, like I feel like I'm doing something. Like I'm complaining and I'm like, yes. Like I feel pretty good. It's like there's something in me that that fuels it, but it is a habit that will not only kill your own joy, but the joy of other people. He says, don't be those who are grumbling, and arguing. Now, we all complain, but in different ways. There, let me just give you a few varieties of complaints. One is the self-pity complaint. No one cares. Another complaint is the cynical complaint. What's the point? And a third is the perfectionist complaint. The type A, men and women in the room, it's never enough. Some of you are like, I use all three. What is, do I get a gold medal? like, no one cares. What's the point? It's never enough. Some of you are like, I think I said that in my marriage (laughs) earlier today. (laughs) It's this kind of complaining and grumbling, and then arguing follows with it. Arguing is a matter of shifting the blame, right? Isn't that what we're usually doing when we argue? We argue because we're trying to justify our own position and shift the blame onto someone else. And let me tell you, again, I'm, I'm good at this. If you guys want lessons, come to me. I mean, you, you think I have three points on a Sunday? Just ask my wife. Like when it comes to arguing, I'm like, honey, I'm right for at least three reasons. And they all start with P. Like number one, I'm right because of this. Number two, I'm right because of this. And that leads to the third, I'm right because of this. We're all good at grumbling and complaining and arguing amongst one another, shifting the blame, throwing a pity party for ourselves, but we need to stop. It's a character issue for us individually and for us as a church corporately. And we need to acknowledge that grumbling, complaining, and arguing is not only unhealthy, it's what the Bible calls sin. It's what separates us from God. And when you think about this grumbling and arguing, we see cautionary tales throughout the Bible. Think of the children of Israel. Their complaining against God is what kept the Israelites back from going into the promised land. God, it's your fault, and we need this, and we don't like that, and we don't like this. It blinds you to the goodness of God. It blinds you to the grace that he gives us. But those who work out their salvation with fear and trembling will be different. He says, what should mark your character is being blameless and pure? Now, blameless does not mean sinless. It doesn't mean that we will never sin, but that when we do, we are quick to repent. That we do not allow these habitual patterns of sin acting in a continual and deliberate way against God. To be blameless is to quickly repent of those things so that we would be the opposite of what he calls a crooked and perverse generation. A generation and a culture that turns away from the truth and twists the truth. That's what the world does according to the Bible. The world is in a state of darkness, not knowing the truth of God, complaining, grumbling, arguing, only adds to this. And yet, by cultivating godly character, guess what? You and I, we can shine like stars in the universe, which is a beautiful metaphor. This is like the dark night sky. Your life, when you're attending to your character, obeying God, following his ways, your life will shine. And this is more than just a beautiful image. It's actually very practical. Because in the ancient world, the commentaries remind us, stars weren't just nice to look at. The ancients used stars as a navigational aid. If you were a boat out on the sea and it was dark at night and you needed to know which way to go and how to get home, I clearly know nothing of this because I don't like the ocean and I don't like getting in boats, which might surprise some of you because we live on the coast of California. But anyway, sidebar, but I do know this. If you need to navigate, you follow the stars, these fixed points of light that will help you find your way home. Friends, we as a church are to live in such a way that in a dark world, other people who are asking, how do I live? What's right? What's true? That they look at our lives and they say, oh, What direction are you heading? I see beauty. I see truth. I see justice. I see mercy. I see compassion in your life. You must be headed in the right direction. And we can say, yes, it's the direction pointing towards Jesus. We can be like that navigational aid. Lights, stars in the darkness. Shining, reflecting the light of Jesus. See, friends... People right now, no matter how old or how young you are, are following in your footsteps. The question is, are my steps leading to danger? Or are my steps leading to the truth? See, ask my my family, I walk very, very fast. When it comes to travel and transportation, I'm a no-nonsense guy. I've got like three map apps like open at any time to find the best route from A to B. When we lived in London, I had it down. I was like, the train leaves. In two and a half minutes, we get on this train. We depart. I go up the stairs. I'm a two steps at a time guy on the stairs. Anyone? I'm a two at a, thank you. I'm a two at a time. Like, I will get there. We will get it done. We will reach the destination. But my wife's always like, uh, you have a family. <laughs> I'm just like on a mission. I'm like, we must get there. My wife's like, hey, ch- uh, children, you have children. I'm like, oh, right, right. You're slowing me down. You know, I got to like look around. I'm like, oh, they're following me. So what do I have to do? adjust my steps. I have to adjust my steps for the sake of those who follow. Friends, are we evaluating our lives only by our own personal wants and desires? Or by the example that we leave to others? Listen, what Paul is saying here is simply this, we must never act as if we're only responsible for ourselves. My life leaves an example. How can I become a, a navigational aid? Well, the answer is in the text. If you hold fast to the word of life. If you hold fast to the truth of God. If you hold fast to Jesus. Because here's the truth. Whatever you hold fast, you will also hold forth to the world. That's how it works. Whatever is most important to you will become public. Whatever you hold fast to, if you hold fast to the word of truth, you will hold forth the word of truth, to this lost and dying world. If Jesus means so much to you in your heart, you will hold him forth to the world as your savior. We've got to hold fast to the word of truth so that we would hold forth the word of truth to this world. So what is it that you're holding fast to? For yourself. Because that's the example that you will set for others. And in doing this, Paul says that the Philippians hold fast the word of truth so that he says, I might boast on the day of Christ. And that leads to the final lesson about character. Character requires a goal. It's about a direction that you are heading. If you want to grow, you need to know where you are headed. And in the latter half of verse 16, Paul gives yet another reason that our character is critical. And what is that reason? Our life is actually headed somewhere. He says, pay attention to this. And at the end of verse 16, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. And then he looks at his own life. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He's connecting character, godly character, to the goal, which is Christ himself, which means we ask not only what example am I leaving, who's following behind, but where am I headed? Paul makes it clear. We're headed, all of us, to the day of Christ. What is the day of Christ? It is either the day that you breathe your last and you stand before God, or the day that Jesus Christ will return to this world to set things right. In both cases, we will give an account. That's where we're headed. And they, the Philippians, like us, we must keep on shining and sharing the good news until that last day, because eternity matters. And to emphasize this, Paul refers to his own life as a race. He's mentioned labor, but he talks about running. He sees the goal and he's counting the cost of what it means to get there. He's holding that goal firmly in his mind, like this is where we're headed. One day I'm gonna breathe my last and stand before Jesus and I wanna know that my example has pointed other people towards Jesus. Now for Paul, this wasn't just theoretical, it was personal. We must remember at the moment of this writing, his death could have been imminent. He was there in a Roman prison, and him being put to death for his faith was a distinct possibility. And as he's thinking about this very real possibility, he refers to it as his life being poured out, which is a phrase that echoes the Old Testament the Old Testament drink offering where a sacrifice would be made and a drink offering, another sacrifice would be poured out on top of it. And he is saying this, he's saying, if I have to die in my current, as my current situation would demand, I would regard it as a worthy sacrifice because it would have been given for the sake of others. See, Paul knows that he will have invested his life well if those he's poured into continue to be faithful all the way to the end. He's saying, it's worth it. That goal is worth it. And what a day that will be, friends. That's where you get joyous. You think of the goal. You think of the end that one day, for all who have trusted in Jesus, we will be remade. All the tears wiped away from our eyes. No more sorrow. No more suffering. No more chaos. No more pain. No more death. What a day. But the road there is the road of character. And so we must give attention. And I know that in doing so, it might feel like a heavy weight on some of us, like, man, I know there's areas of my life I need to grow, and God wants to address, and it just feels like a heavy burden, and yes, there's a responsibility, but it's all based on grace, and I want you to notice two things that appear in this text. I want to nerd out on you for a moment, but it matters. In this text, there are what we call imperatives and indicatives in the Greek language. Imperatives are what you must do. So think of what we've just read. Obey, work, be blameless, shine, hold fast. And if we just look at the imperatives, that's a weighty thing. But they are also indicatives. Indicatives are what is already true. The text also says God is at work. You are God's children. You are lights. All the imperatives of Scripture are based on the indicatives Everything that God has called you to do is based on what is already true. And that's the point, friends. Everything that you are called to do is based on what is already true in Jesus Christ. Everything that you're called to do, to grow, to witness, to love the people in your life is all based on what is true in Jesus Christ. Listen, Christian character is not about pretending to be something that you're not. It's about becoming who you are in Christ. And how can we know these things are true? Because more than Paul, Jesus Christ already poured out his life as an offering. He poured out his sinless, perfect life for us. He adjusted his steps when he came into this world in the direction of the cross to sacrifice himself for my sins and for your sins. Sins that would otherwise keep us from God for all eternity. And he rose again and defeated death so that we could be forgiven of our sins. So that we could be accepted and adopted by God forever. He rose to give us new life. As we celebrate baptism today, it is a response to what God has already done for you. If you've received Jesus as Savior, It is a response. As we think about our character and our growth and as we celebrate baptism, may it be a picture for you today. I work out what God works in. He wants me to give attention to this. It's all based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So first of all, for those of you who are not Christians, you're visiting with us today, you're joining us online, sitting outside, or you're here in the room with a friend, I invite you to put your faith in Jesus Right now, your sins have separated you from him and will result in an eternal separation from him. But today, you can know that you are forgiven. Trust in what Jesus has done for you. He died for your sins, he rose for you. Trust in him today and make that decision public by getting baptized. For those of you who are new Christians, this truth that we've studied today should give you such confidence, especially for those of you who have not yet been baptized. Because being baptized today is not you saying, hey, I've got this, right? Just so you know, that's not what you say when you get in the tub. You're not like, hey, everyone, I've got this. I've got the Christian life. That's not what you're saying. You're saying, God has got me. I work out what God works in. I have in him everything that I need to live rightly. It's a picture of you going down into the grave and then you're being pulled out with the strength of another. It's a little picture of salvation. Your sins are dead and buried, but you're raised to new life in Christ, clean and accepted. And for all of us, we celebrate because it's a symbol of what God wants us all to know. We work out what God works in. We respond to what He is doing. And today, we celebrate that. We make decisions in light of it. And we will be changed as we do more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together that we would respond. Father, I thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And I pray first for those who are not yet Christians. I pray that right now they would simply say, Jesus, save me. I know nothing else in this world will save me. And my sin will separate me from you forever. God, I pray that right now they would listen to the conviction of your Holy Spirit turning them away from sin and towards Jesus, that they would make that decision today and publicly profess that decision by being baptized. Father, I pray for those who are getting baptized, that they would be encouraged, that this is a response. Baptism is not the reason they are saved. It is the result that you have saved them. It is a response to your saving work. I pray that you'd encourage them today and that we would celebrate together. And for all of us, Lord, that we would remember, we work out what you work in. All of these imperatives are based on the indicatives. All of what you've called us to do is based on what is true in Jesus Christ. And for that, we celebrate. So I pray that today would be just that. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.